So Thursday morning, I was, dry, I was in the drive-through at Steam Anchor, and <clears throat> I was at the window ordering my coffee, and the woman in the window asked me uh, the question. She said, the question of the day, I've never had anyone ask me that before, the question of the day is, what are you most looking forward to today? And, and I quickly thought, and I answered, uh, I'm most looking forward to reading and as soon as I said that, I realized what a nerd that made me sound like and, and how that's maybe kind of sad that that was what I was most looking forward to today. And, and she looked at me a little quizzically and asked, well, what are you reading? It must be really good, you know, that you're so excited. And I, I said, I, I'm reading uh, this book. It's 316. Uh, I'm a pastor and I'm preparing for a, a sermon. She said, oh, 316, you mean the verse 316, John 316. I said, yeah, and she said it was the first verse that I ever memorized. Uh, this is the morning that some of you have been waiting for, because we get to the verse that you already have memorized, and you feel like, ah, I can take a, a breather of, of all of this memory work. Maybe like the, the girl at Steam Anchor, this was a verse that, the very first verse you ever memorized a long time ago. So we are going to jump into 316 today, but before we do, let's do a little review of our, our verses. Uh, so we started the series off with Colossians 316. If you can join me, uh, I invite you to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. You all got that, right? Okay. 2 Timothy 3.16, I'm going to let someone else get us started. All? And is useful teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we'll be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Good job. Last week, 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you know that you are God's temple and God's spirit lives in you. Good job. Join me as we pray for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Father, your word tells us that faith comes through the message and the message is the word of Christ. Lord, we ask that you would do a transforming work in our hearts today by the power of your living word, that you would birth faith in our hearts. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's see if we can do it together. John 3.16, let's get rid of that verse. Get rid of that, Tyler. We're not going to give any, uh, any clues. Back up one slide. There we go. You just got a little teaser. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Good job. Sorry, I just messed up the whole lights. So as our pattern has been, uh, before taking a deep dive on the verse, we're going to just take a step back and consider the context of this special verse. So John 3.16, the most famous verse in all of Scripture, is spoken by Jesus in the context of one of the most famous conversations in all of Scripture. It's the conversation that took, it pla took place at night between the revered Pharisee Nicodemus 
and Jesus. If you have been watching The Chosen, you've been introduced to Nicodemus, who's an incredible character. And Nicodemus was a holy man of God. He was one of the foremost scholars when it came to the Torah. He was referred to as teacher of teachers. People came to Nicodemus to get their questions answered. He was one of the Pharisees who had a, a seat on the Sanhedrin, which was the, like the supreme court in Judea. He, when it came to memorizing scripture, he didn't memorize verses. He memorized books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all committed to memory, credentials, accomplishments, good works, respect, the Reverend Dr. Nicodemus was at the, the head of the pack, and none of it had just been handed to him. He earned all of it through his hard work and his devotion. So Nicodemus requests a special meeting with Jesus under the cover of darkness. Jesus, this rogue rabbi, had piqued Nicodemus's curiosity. There had been plenty of other roaming preachers and teachers who had come and gone, but there was something notably different about Jesus. What Nicodemus observed was that Jesus' teaching was backed up by an array of miracles that were simply unexplainable. In fact, he begins the conversation with Jesus by saying, we know that you've come from God because no one could do the things that you're doing if God were not with him. Now, polite conversation would have mandated that Jesus would have said, I've heard about you too, Nicodemus, teacher of teachers, you know, offered some, some polite compliment. But instead, Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. Truly, I tell you, Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Born again. Despite all of his theological training, Nicodemus had no theological hook on which he could hang these two words, born again. Born again. If Jesus wanted to, to talk about the finer points of the law, Nicodemus could go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. If Jesus wanted to talk about philosophy, Nicodemus would have been right at home if Jesus wanted to talk about all the things that a, a Jew should do to please the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that would have been home field advantage for Nicodemus. But with these two words, born again, Nicodemus is out of his depth. There's nothing he could contribute to this conversation except questions. Born again? What do you mean, born again? You must be born from above, Jesus said. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. This is all new for Nicodemus. We need to understand that Nicodemus had been raised in the school where the proper question was always, what must I do? What must I do to inherit eternal life. Tell me what to do and I'll do it. Memorize the Torah, done. Give 10% as a minimum of what God's entrusted me back to him, done. 
have the strictest rules concerning the, the Sabbath, I'll go a step further. I'll invent some rules. Done. Attend synagogue daily? Yes. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God. I will do all of that. Whatever is expected of me to please our God, I will do. Tell me what to do, and I'll do it. But this idea of being born again, how do I do that? After all, when you think about being born, it is pretty much a passive act. We don't birth ourselves. It's our mother who goes through the, the labor. It's our, our birth mother who does all of the hard work. Anyone who wants to say amen, this is an appropriate time to do it. Babies are the beneficiaries of the work of their mothers. So by telling him that he must be born again, what Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to consider is that what was needed was not something that needed to be done by him, but something that needed to be done for him. And that, for Nicodemus, is, is groundbreaking. It's just a revolution in his thought. These words, you must be born again, are not an invitation for you, Nicodemus, to do something more. I know that's the world you've lived in. It's not an invitation to work harder, to perform better. Nicodemus would have understood that, and he would have risen to the occasion, no doubt. No, Jesus is inviting Nicodemus to consider an entire new relationship with God, a new equation, one which is based on the fact that Nicodemus is not the giver, not the producer, not the earner, not even the slightest contributor, but rather the one who is the, the receiver. Instead of being the subject which Nicodemus was accustomed to being, Jesus was telling him he needed to be the object. The subject that needed to act in Nicodemus' life was God. You must be born from above, Jesus said. That was hard for Nicodemus to hear. It didn't square with his worldview. And honestly, I think it's hard for us to hear when we really consider it doesn't square with our worldview. We like being the subject. We're drawn to the idea of earning our way. We have dignity in that. We have pride in that. We like to think of ourselves of working our way up, of climbing the ladder, of, of being self-reliant. That was Nicodemus's world. It's our world. This is a very, very imperfect analogy, but I'm going to use it. Ask somebody who has worked hard to pay their way through college, who spent years paying off student loans. Ask them what they think about the idea of student loan forgiveness. And my guess is you're going to get a negative reaction. It's not fair. I worked hard. I took extra jobs. I worked the night shift to pay off those loans. I worked hard, and so should they. Nicodemus had worked hard to get where he was at. It wasn't easy, but he earned it. And now Jesus appeared to be leveling the playing field. Your degrees don't matter. Your credentials 
your titles, your position, your good works. They don't contribute one single thing to your salvation. Again, it's not what needs to be done by you. It's what needs to be done for you. It must have felt like Jesus was pulling the theological rug right out from under Nicodemus. I mean, he had worked hard to obtain everything that he had, and now he's being told that, that what he needed was, was really a gift, a free gift. Talk about unfair. I've worked 11 hours to get the, the pay that I deserve, and now you're telling me someone who's hired at the, at the last minute gets the same wage as I do? What is this nonsense? Well, the Bible has a word for this nonsense. It's called the gospel. It's called the good news. In Greek, it's called the, evangel the evangelion. Jesus decided to accommodate Nicodemus, his understanding, by turning to a story that Nicodemus knew well. They wanted to talk about this, this story. Nicodemus could go on and preach for hours. Nicodemus, do you remember that, that incident recorded in the book of Numbers? When the Israelites were in the wilderness and they sinned against God, and God sent snakes into the camp and the snakes bit the Israelites and they were dying one after another? And do you remember how God told told Moses to, to fashion a snake, a bronze snake, to put it on a pole and to stand it up. And anyone who looked at that snake would immediately be healed of that venom within them. Do you remember that story? Of course, Nicodemus remembered that story. What did the Israelites contribute to their salvation, to their healing? Nothing. They were snake bit because of their sin, and they couldn't do a single thing to save themselves. But God so loved them that he made a way for them to be saved. That if anyone looked at the bronze snake on the pole, they wouldn't perish, but they'd receive temporal life. They would get their life back. Being born again is is like that Nicodemus. The Israelites couldn't save themselves from that poison that was coursing through their blood, and neither can we save ourselves from the sin that resides in our heart. No amount of hard work, no measure of improved performance, no increase in determination or resolve can provide the remedy for our dilemma the answer to our problem is not found within. The answer to our problem is not going to be found by looking deep into ourselves and pulling something out. The answer to our problem is found without, on the outside. Our salvation, it's not achieved by something that we have to do. It's achieved by something that is done for us, something that's done to us. We must be born again from above, and this is God's doing. So friends, this is a very long introduction to what has been called the hope diamond of the Bible. Nicodemus might not have immediately heard this all as good news, 
but it's incredibly good news. We have all been, been snake bit, and there's not a single thing that we can do to eradicate the poison from our body. We are living with an eternal death sentence, and we can't contribute a single thing towards our defense. But the gospel is that God has done that. God can do that, and he has done that. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Notice the, the subject of the sentence, for God. For God. Our hope is not in ourselves. If the second word of John 3.16 were, were anything but the name of God, if it was Nicodemus' name for Nicodemus, if it was my name, if it was your name, we'd all be in trouble. Praise God that the, the John 3.16 is for God. You know, there are, are millions of people today who believe falsely that they can successfully be the subject of their salvation. If I lead a good life, if I'm a good person, if I do more good than bad, thinking God is somehow Santa Claus, if I do this, if I do that, if I don't do this, if I don't do that, if I'm better than, than most of the other people around me, then I, I have assurance that I'll, I'll be okay with God. But here's the problem. God doesn't grade on a curve. God doesn't say to us, be better. He says, be holy. Be holy as I am holy. And friends, there's enough venom in just one snake bite of sin to render us unholy. God says be holy, and the problem that infects all of us is that we are all unholy. So whether you've been bitten a thousand times and your life is a wreck, or you look more like Nicodemus, like you've got it all together, we carry the same death sentence. We are unholy before God. So who is in a position to intervene in our situation? God and God alone. He can birth us into a new creation. He can, can, can make us born again from above. For God so loved the world. Think about all the other ways that sentence could have read. For God just grew so tired of the world. Became impatient with the world gave up on the world, hated the world. We notice in the sentence that love is a verb. For God so loved the world. His love is a, an action. It's not just a, a warm, fuzzy feeling. It's not a, a philosophy. It's not a theory. His love is a love that acts. And so what does his love do? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. One of the uh, maybe consequences of the fact that we've had this verse memorized forever 
is that that no longer brings us to our knees. That he gave his one and only son. A couple weeks ago in Treasure Seekers, I was sharing uh, with them the story from Genesis 22, which I find abhorrent. It's the story of God testing Abraham to sacrifice his son, his one and only son. And Abraham, believing that God is going to intervene, takes Isaac up the mountain and prepares to sacrifice him. And at the last second, God says, stop. And he looks over in a thicket, and there is a, a ram that God has provided to be sacrificed in his place. I find the story really hard, especially after having become a father. And I ask the kids, kids, why, why is this story in the Bible? I got a lot of blank stares. And then there was one child, and I, I wish I could remember who it was, who I literally saw the light bulb go on in, in, their, in their mind, jumped out of their seat. There is a story like this in the Bible. God gave his son. And unlike Genesis 22, there was no time out. This is just a test. God followed through with the sacrifice because his son was the lamb. His son is the substitute. We are the ones that deserve to be on that altar because of our sin. Jesus takes our place for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Oh, that that would bring us to our knees again. That whoever believes in him. The invitation is extended to everyone. Whoever, there is going to be nobody who wants to be part of the family of God that's going to be turned away. There's going to be nobody knocking on that door who doesn't have the door answered. Whoever, those who come, those who knock, those who believe, however, can take no credit for their coming and for their believing. For we know, the scripture says, that, that nobody comes to God unless God first draws them. Listen to what Paul says. This is another verse that, that would be good to memorize. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this what? Not of yourself. Even your faith is not of yourself. It's a gift of God that nobody should boast. In other words, God doesn't just provide the means of salvation and then say to us, I've done the hard work, now you do the easy work. He doesn't throw a life preserver out into the dark night and hope that there might be some people who latch on to that. This, by the way, is what it means to be reformed because a lot of traditions teach that. No, God provides the means of salvation and he does the actual saving. He dives into the water of this world. He takes hold of people who are dead in their sins, people who don't have the ability to reach out to that life preserver. He takes people who are dead in their sins and he ushers them to safety and he breathes into them the breath of life so that they are born again from first to last, it is all grace. It is all God's doing. 
Whoever believes has nobody to thank and praise but Jesus Christ. And whoever doesn't believe has nobody to blame but themselves. For we all have gone astray. This is good news. It's good news for people who have made a mess of their lives. And it's good news for the Nicodemuses of the world. For people who are doing everything right and yet still have the stain of sin, the the poison of sin living within them. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Friends, the the, the gospel message is not that some people are going to perish and that some people are going to be saved. The gospel message is that everyone is perishing. Across the board, everyone is perishing. Nobody deserves God's mercy. Everyone is perishing, but prompted by love, God has intervened by sending his son so that some might be saved. At the uh, table on Wednesday nights, we have been working our way through the Gospel of John. And a a couple of weeks ago, we did the story of the woman at the well. And that happens in John chapter 4. It follows on the heels of this, John chapter 3. And it occurred to me as we were talking about the woman at the well that that this story takes John 3.16, God's love for the world, and it makes it personal. For God so loved the woman at the well that he sent his son to Samaria to have an encounter with her so that she might believe and not perish and have eternal life. This incredible news that God sent his son to the world is personal. God sent his son for you so that you might be saved. So believe in him and be born again. Join me as we pray. Lord, may the old, old story never get old. Never get old for us. Lord, may we never take what you've done for us for granted. Lord, you are are still in the business today of, of saving people, rescuing people, Lord, who are dead in their sins. Lord, you invite us as a church to to be part of your rescue mission. But Lord, we know that we don't have the power to do that. It is only through your Spirit's power. So we pray that you would do a work. We pray that you would use Crossview Church in this community and in your world. Be glorified, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.